Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. On today's episode, I'm joined by one of sports broadcasting's most familiar faces, Gabby Logan. This summer alone, we watched Gabby helm the Commonwealth Games, the European Championships, the Women's Euros, the London Marathon, just to name a few. She has been a trailblazer for women in sport, no doubt inspired by her own family sporting credentials. As a former international gymnast herself, she competed at the Commonwealth Games, as well as being the daughter of a professional footballer and manager and the wife of a rugby international. Sport is a huge part of her life. She's also the host of the highly successful podcast The Midpoint and a prolific writer here today ahead of the launch of her new book The First Half. Gabby has travelled all over the globe to cover the world's greatest sporting events as well as being a really keen traveller in the few spare moments that she has off and today she takes us from Vermont and Vancouver to the islands of Kefalonia and St Bart's and much much more as well. So fasten your seatbelts everyone let's get started. Gabby Logan, welcome to The Travel Diaries. It's amazing to see you. I feel like I've seen you all summer on our TV screens and it's just amazing <laughs> to be like sitting in front of you today. How are you? I'm very, very well. Yeah, I, I feel like I was on your TV screen a lot this summer as well. I can only <laughs> apologise for that. <laughs> well, I mean, it was such an incredible summer of sport and you were so busy I can only hope that you had a bit of time now to do a bit of traveling and relaxation afterwards well I had a six-day break um at the end of summer because of my my commitments my kids commitments and that that was the one window we could do and we went down to a very good friend kindly lent us his beautiful house in the south of France and that's not somewhere that as a family we've actually holidayed before so it was really lovely exploring new places and having very lovely meals and just some chill out time but not quite long enough really I think we could have all done with another week. Yeah definitely have you got any plans on the horizon? Well a lot of the rest of this year is taken up um, (laughs) including at the end of the year the World Cup in Qatar. Yeah of course Uh, it's a big one. Yeah for lots of reasons Um, so I'm trying to create some space in January and hopefully my husband and I might try and get a little ski trip or a warm trip depending on what he feels like um, in January. How's he doing? He's doing very well thank you yeah really good. good. I'm really really pleased to hear that. Thank you. Um, So have you been to Qatar before are you going to go out? I have been to Qatar I did the World Athletics Championships there in 2019. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah and uh, yeah I'm not I'm not somebody that kind of goes to the Emirates on holiday, you know, so I, that wouldn't be my destination, Dubai or, you know, Abu Dhabi. So mm. I'm I'm kind of more more of a kind of natural environment type of person. I'm curious to see how it all pans out there. What were the times yeah. of the matches and the yeah. time I mean, of the I think FIFA generally pulls it off. There's always doubt and spec, you know, Russia was um, an amazing World Cup. I mean, it feels weird to say that now, four years on, that, that we had such a successful World Cup there and that Russia was incredibly hospitable, really open, met some fantastic people. And now it's somewhere that very few of us will go for a long time. And that seems so sad. I met some beautiful people. I've, you know, I've kept in touch on Instagram with the fixer that we had, who was just 
insanely brilliant woman. And I saw places that I'd never, you know, I went to places like Samara and Kaliningrad and, you know, I've been to Moscow many times, but well, a few times, but I'd never kind of drifted off the beaten track so much. So, yeah. yeah. And so what my point is that FIFA will make sure the World Cup part of the World Cup goes well. It just for me is a bit odd being in a country where the furthest grounds are only kind of a half an hour ride away from each other. I think a World Cup should be about exploring a football nation and Qatar isn't a football nation. Mm. So mm. We'll, we'll follow along and see how it all goes. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting. Well, we're going to go on a journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries today, Gabby. And it was really interesting because looking through your memoir and reading it, so many of the chapters, actually, the titles were linked to destinations, be that Auckland or Vancouver, Bradford, LA. So, I mean, travel has been quite formative in key life moments for you. Definitely. Yeah. I think um, my parents, when I talk about this a bit in the book, actually, as young children, we did seem to go on quite interesting trips. Um, And they did seem to stop at a certain point when I think jobs and school and things in football just didn't collide. Um, But we did go on quite interesting holidays, including a trip to New York when I was about six, which, um, and Long Island, which was to do with the fact that we had an auntie who worked as a kind of housekeeper for a family in Long Island. So we kind of used her base and it wasn't a package holiday. You know, this is before people kind of went to America on holiday, really. So, um, they did, they did want to go off the beaten track a bit in terms of destinations that weren't that popular. It wasn't just kind of Spanish, um, Southern Spain kind of package holidays. Yeah. We went to, um, went to Greece and they took us to Montserrat in the um, Caribbean. And so, yeah, yeah, so we did go to some interesting places. And I think as a result, I've realised how education informative those trips were. I always wanted to take my kids when they were younger to to slightly different places all the time. Slightly like off the beaten track. Yeah, well, not not so much dragging them through jungles or anything like that as children, but not going to the same place every time, you know, Mm -hmm. not going to the same destination every time. So um, a lot of their friends, would, you know, they'd have holidays in Portugal every summer or, you know, we'd kind of go, well, we're going to do, I mean, one of my favourite trips was actually the Highlands of Scotland with them. And, you know, as teenagers that took a bit of coaxing. (laughs) (laughs) Was that? like a a walking holiday we did a bit of that yeah Yeah. there's lots of open water kind of jumping into locks and uh walking up Munro's and that kind of thing yeah I mean even if you're a teenager you can't deny the beauty of the highlands of Scotland oh yeah 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 they 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 they, a week was probably long enough I got to like day eight or nine they were kind of okay can we go home now (laughs) (laughs) so so chapter one of your travel diaries is your earliest childhood travel memory is that your trip to Long Island um, I think probably not, actually. I I, I think before that, um, we went to Greece and I remember that holiday because it was insanely hot. And my mum and dad had met this guy called Yanis, um, <laughs> of course, and he, he was a ski instructor, water ski instructor at a hotel in Corfu. He was a big football fan and my dad was a footballer and he'd met my dad through coming to England to watch matches. He was an insanely handsome, long blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, incredibly tanned. Um, and he oh. ran the, the water sports part of this hotel. So we went to stay in this hotel. I must have been about four. And I just remember being really hot all the time. And uh, there was no air conditioning, of course, back then in these hotels. And my parents would always, they've loved their social life. So they would always have a babysitter kind of take over or they'd take somebody with them so that we would get fed early and then they would put us to bed and go out in the evenings. And I I just remember sitting on these um, plastic, white plastic table and chairs with red check tablecloths eating you know an English meal in a in a Greek place uh, and I love Greek food now as well and being really hot and being taken to bed and 
which is not a great first travel memory, no, is it no. really? Um, <laughs> at holiday to Greece, but um, but that that is the first time I can kind of feel that heat and you know that that um, feeling of holiday, yeah, like the- and that smell, you know, that smell when you get off the plane in in Southern Europe, and it just it's just evocative, I think, and Absolutely. and different, and and last year it was last year I went. Um, to Greece. Not the, that's not the second time I went last year, but hadn't been on holiday since my early twenties in Greece. And very good friends of ours have acquired and bought themselves because they've done well in life a yacht, and uh, nice. and they invited. Uh, yeah, so the, my friend invited her girlfriends on, and we sailed around the islands. And my God, it was the most incredible, beautiful holiday. And I thought, why have I not been here for twenty odd years? You know. So um, I think my early my early Greek memories were that holiday as a four year old, and then when I went on with a boyfriend from university on a package holiday to Corfu, which was hideous. And uh, and so I've kind of rekindled and got back my uh, you know the, the real Greece. Actually, I think Your is what we Greece. saw by boat. Yeah. Yeah. What islands did you do on the on the yacht tour? So we were mainly around um, Kefalonia. Um, so it's all the um, Ionian, basically. And they, um, I think it's gastronomically led because we just go into little tiny bays and ports that have got amazing restaurants. And when I say amazing restaurants, there's nothing flash about them at all. You know, you look at them and think, are we going to eat there tonight? And then this insanely good food comes out and these just uh, incredible hospitality and beautiful waters. And yeah, it was it took my breath away actually because I just was a bit nervous about it because I was thinking, oh, I'm on a boat with all these people and you know you, you can't escape and where do you, and actually it was so relaxing and so therapeutic and the food was so good so I'm desperate to go back and do that again. Incredible! Oh, sounds absolutely wonderful. And you mentioned that your dad was a uh, professional footballer um, when you were growing up. Did that did that mean you had a kind of peripatetic? lifestyle absolutely yeah we um we, we moved I think I had three homes before I was four years old right so um that tells you a little bit and we moved he would move clubs so he, if he was being transferred he would often have to go ahead of us so my mum would have to pack up and move on behind and and back then there wasn't kind of the renting culture that footballers do now the top footballers rarely buy their houses you know they rent oh, really? these mega mansions not not the foreign ones anyway they come in and rent these big houses and um um, and because they know they could be moving on, very few kind of put roots down, and um, we we did back then. You know, you bought a house, and and so then you'd have to sell it and move on. And so um, we moved a lot. We moved cities, eventually moved countries, moved to Vancouver, and it was a really interesting and adventurous. 10 years or so because my mum treated it that way you know she'd say this is an adventure and you're going to meet new kids and they're going to have different accents and they're going to have different experiences and so I think we were really lucky that my mum had this very um gung-ho spirited kind of approach to it all so none of us ever I can't remember any of us because I say any there were three and then four of us I can't remember any of us feeling like first day of school nerves or worried about how we were going to assimilate. And we had each other as well. We were in three years of the school. So we took over, you know, it was like the Yorath kids have arrived. And, and if, you know, if one of us kind of had any issues, somebody in that year group would then, you know, make sure that that was all right. And it was, oh, it was, nice. I think, yeah, we were a little gang traveling around the world. Do you think that that meant that you also just, because you're so busy on the, on the go with work now, like with your job that you can, you know, go in, go with the flow very easily. Yeah, I talk about this in the book actually about how, on the one hand, it made me um, a very adaptable person. I think to new environments and not being very fearful about change. But on the other, as a kid with friendships, I think I was probably subliminally mindful of the fact that I would be moving on. And so, I although I'd have good friends, 
I never really retained them. You know, I kind of moved on and left them behind and didn't didn't write them or kind of keep in contact. Like one of my friend's kids, they've moved around the world a lot because they're actors. They've lived in LA and Vancouver in the south of France. And their kids, who are my kids' friends, they keep in touch with all their friends from America when they were little, all their friends from the south of France. And I didn't, I didn't do that. I was mm. much more, I was think I was quite protective of my, myself probably and feeling, right, okay, you know, time to move on. New, new friends yeah. are coming. Yeah. Uh, and there's also a thing when you're a kid as well, when you're moving schools, you can reinvent yourself again because you might have done something that's given you a reputation, you know, maybe silly things like being clumsy or being um, somebody who speaks too much in class or somebody who, you know, did something once in the playground that, you know, like I had went through a phase of being so clumsy that I kind of dropped children in piggybacks and, you know, landed on, and I was like, I'm not, I don't want to be known as that person. So my next school, I'm going to just stay indoors and, and not have accidents. So, um, so it was, it was quite a, um, quite therapeutic in that sense as a child, I think. Shedding, shedding, shedding a layer of something that you'd acquire. Is it, you know, I don't want to be that person. I'd like to be the bookish person in my next school. I, I, I'm going to be known as a clever person. <laughs> so chapter two is the first place that you fell in love with. Where would that be? The first place I fell in love with, um, it's really like when you're a kid, I think you don't necessarily realise that you the bigger world and where you're going to go, you know, how, how you can kind of go back to places and your feeling of kind of, um, oh, I love this where I am now. And actually all, for all the travel that we did um, and all the, you know, the places we visited, I think when I went to Vancouver for the first time, I thought this is utopia. Mm. I mean, for me as a kid, it was all about the outdoors. It was all about sport. It was about the sea. It was about the mountains. There were, you know, the kids at school would ski at the weekends in winter. They'd go sailing in the summer in the sea. And these were, you know, this was everybody. This was a very democratic approach to outdoor life. It was very easy and cheap to kind of access these things and encouraged. And we finished school at two o'clock. I mm. mean, you know, just like the dream. So we'd go down to the beach with my mum and, you know, pick up shells or we'd then go and, you know, visit some, could we go to Chinatown or we'd go into downtown Vancouver. We lived in West Vancouver, which was insanely beautiful. And it was a place that I gone from Coventry, which I love Coventry, but that's where we'd lived before. And so to move from Coventry to Vancouver is ridiculous. I mean, it is it, such a it's, contrast. It's such a contrast. And Coventry was in the early eighties was a city that was mired in problems, racial, racial tensions that was were affecting some of the big cities in England. There were riots going on. You know, it was it wasn't a place that um, felt particularly safe or secure. And the the park we lived near in the centre of Coventry was a lovely park. But that was pretty much it for my green open space nearby because we were living in an apartment at the time or a flat because my mum and dad were renting our house out because they knew the move was coming. So we went from this flat, two bedroom flat, three kids in Coventry to this absolutely beautiful house in Vancouver on the side of a mountain. So yeah, I fell in love. Yeah. <laughs> Call me shallow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. But as you say in the memoir, I mean, going from one glamorous location to another, that you uh, fell in love with sport at the Holiday Inn in Slough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I was, uh, when I was 10, yeah, I would have, no, no, I was older than that. So it was when we came back from Vancouver, I would have been 12 going on 13, wouldn't I? Because it was the 84 Olympics, 11. And um, my mum decided we were going to, it's the exotic holidays that kind of stopped, right? I don't know what happened, but our holiday that year was a trip to London 
Slough in brackets uh, because she'd booked the holiday in Slough and we were going to go to Windsor Castle and then we were going to go into London and we were going to travel around the area. I, I'm not quite sure why she chose that hotel. And there were there was just the kids and her. My dad was obviously training or playing. And um, my mum has been a, a, a kind of groom aficionado, you know, she's grooming aficionado. She, she looks great all the time and she does spend a bit of time getting ready for dinner, even if it's just with the kids. So she always puts rollers in and she's kind of, you know, does her makeup. And so while she was doing that every evening, I was watching the highlights of the LA Olympics, sat on the hotel bed. And it just it was like a thunderbolt of, this is amazing. I was already doing a lot of sport, but this was amazing. You know, and the LA Olympics was so glamorous, you know, it just looked so incredible. And the pictures compared to say that the Moscow Olympics four years earlier weren't grainy anymore. The quality of, of image we were seeing was better. Mm-hmm. So when I got back home, I started taping these shows and I started like, you know, kind of watching these gymnastics routines that I was admiring of. And and the whole LA Olympics really kind of brought my sporting world to life it gave it color gave it meaning purpose direction because the olympics my sport was an olympic sport and so i could see a goal something to aim for and these were normal people that i you know i knew one of my gymnast friends from my club she's a lot older than me she was like a young woman she was 18 but she went to the la olympics people i knew had gone to la you know so within yeah, your, real. your grasp somehow yeah. yeah somehow this this girl lorraine who is lorraine priest who i mentioned in the book was a gymnast at our club and she just went to an ordinary school in Leeds. You know, she wasn't from kind of, you know, an exalted background. She was very much a Leeds lass. She had got to the Olympics. So if she could get to the Olympics, you know, I could. I didn't in the end, <laughs> but it gave me a real kind of wake up call. And so you did rhythmic gymnastics. So that is the gymnastics with the different... Ribbons, clubs, hoops, balls. I yeah, disco- so I discovered this just now in the European Championships because they always give so much more coverage to artistic gymnastics. And I was absolutely blown away I prefer watching it because <laughs> what was your so what was your which one did well you, you do? have to do everything oh, you, you do have to do everything them, right? mm. it's not like um artistic gymnastics people t- are all rounders or specialists in rhythmic you have to do all, um there's five pieces and they rotate four every four years one piece drops out the other one comes back oh, really? and so yeah so you might have ribbon hoop clubs rope and then ball comes back in, you know, so, um, but as a junior, you do everything. And, um, and so international competitions, you have to have four routines and you do find that you have a natural affinity towards one, you know, more than another. I like the hoop because it was so big that when I threw it, I could catch something. Whereas the, you know, the clubs, if you miscatch a club, you're probably going to get clonked on the head. Well, yeah. Didn't you, you mis- just say how clumsy <laughs> you were? <laughs> yeah. Well, this was the thing. When I first started gymnastics, my sister was doing it ahead of me. I wanted to be a tennis player. And when she first started gymnastics and I was in the garden doing it, apparently they, they called me like the baby elephant and they were all like, oh, get us something else to do. Um, <laughs> but I think it probably, it focuses you because you're executing and practicing movements, you know, so it's um it's a good, it's a good way of trying to get rid of your clumsiness, I think, yeah. doing it. I, I mean, I really recommend watching it. It's just so enjoyable. I go down rabbit holes all the time. I'll, my sister will send me a clip because she lives in Las Vegas now. She'll send me a clip of a gymnast. So you look at what this rhythmic gymnast doing. And then suddenly I'm on YouTube and I'm watching 25 routines. And because the sport now is just so much more, they've changed lots of aspects of it and they can do things that are a little bit more gymnasticky than we could. And it's just insanely brilliant. Yeah. And uh, it's, the skill levels are brilliant. And uh, Ukraine and Russia 
and Israel, actually, they must have got a Russian coach or something because they, those those nations have been brilliant um, in the last few years. When I was younger, it was Bulgaria was the top nation, Russia and Bulgaria. So I just, all my childhood heroes were girls with names that ended in over, um, you know, <laughs> and uh, or, um, you know, people called Marina or Diliana or Georgiana. And, you know, um, my friends at school were like, who's she? Oh, I don't know, but I want to be her. So guys, this week it's competition time. Today's episode is supported by Briggs & Riley, the premium luggage brand known for its timeless style and extraordinary engineering. All of its baseline wheeled luggage includes the world's only one-touch CX expansion, which means that with the simple press of a button, luggage can expand to increase packing capacity and then be easily compressed down to its original size afterwards. I mean, how incredibly handy the amount of times I could have done with that over the years when holiday shopping got the better of me it really is a game changer and another thing I love about Briggs and Riley is that they're the only luggage company to offer an unconditional lifetime guarantee with free product repairs no proof of purchase needed and no questions asked it's all part of their purposeful focus on reducing the number of bags that end up in landfills I'm so excited to be teaming up with Briggs and Riley to give you my lovely listeners the chance to win a truly incredible prize you'll receive one of their gorgeous suitcases monogrammed with your own initials worth 599 pounds and a set of packing cubes too worth 50 pounds to make packing a breeze just head over to my instagram at holly rubenstein to find out how to enter you have until next tuesday evening october 18th when a winner will be picked at random and you can explore the briggs and riley baseline collection at briggs-riley.com that's briggs-riley.com Good luck and terms and conditions will apply. So chapter three is a place where you learnt the most about yourself. Learned the most about myself, I would probably say, and it's not um it's not really kind of a, I suppose, a destination. Well, it is a holiday destination travel destination, London, because I had my gap year in London. And I wasn't supposed to. I was supposed to be traveling. And I had had I mean, I go into great detail about this in the book, but I'd acquired somehow a boyfriend who was 10 years older than me. Let's just say that. You'll have to read the book to understand a bit more. And he was an athlete. And um, in my gap year, I was supposed to be going around the world following his race schedule. Because before that, before I'd had my gap year, he was off every weekend to interesting European cities. And he said, you just come with me and you'll see the places and, you know, we'll get the race organizers to pay for your travel and it'll be great. And um, I left Leeds after my last A-level, went to London with this being my intention. He very quickly got injured, ended up going off to Australia to get himself rehabbed because that's where a lot of the top sports scientists were. And he had a connection to Australia. And I stayed in the flat in London with four jobs. Now, this doesn't sound like very exotic gap year. In fact, it sounds like the world's worst gap year. I was doing all kinds of hand-to-mouth jobs to try and pay my way. I didn't want to go back to Leeds. I felt really kind of strongly that I was going to uh, see this through. And at some point, some travel would come. And actually, what I learned about myself that year was really important. And um, and it set me kind of up to probably be more ambitious than I'd been. It probably set me up to be um, realise about how hard work is and you know it's when you're a kid you can't imagine yourself kind of with a job or a career or profession it just feels like so grown up and that year I had to do a lot of grown-up things really quickly in that year my brother died as well and um and that was an enormous life lesson so I had all these things that I kind of went into that year with the naivety of this lovely year of travel and just you know having fun and ended up working some really 
disappointing jobs, losing my brother, breaking up eventually with that that boyfriend, you know, and um, and I learned a lot. And I think um, at the time it was very disappointing in many ways, and <laughs> very disappointing with regard to my my brother. Obviously, it was it, we were grief stricken. But through time, I look back and realise that year was incredibly important and formative. Incredibly formative, yeah. And yeah. Um, I don't think my life would have gone in the direction that it has without that year. Because say I'd just gone to university straight from school and not had that year, those lessons would have to be learned at some point potentially. Mm-hmm. And um, and I consolidated a lot of lesson learning in that year. And and it made me so much more focused when I got to Durham because I'd, I'd worked rubbish jobs. I didn't want to do those things again. I wanted to do something that gave me satisfaction. And, you know, I wanted to really just reach out and take all the opportunities I could. And I didn't mind doing weekend shifts on the radio station in Newcastle where I got up at four in the morning, two days a week, because I felt like there was something worth going for. And that year, definitely. And when I say rubbish jobs, you know, everybody has to kind of go through this. But when, you know, you're working in it, I was working in a shoe shop on my own with no other staff. I was working, mm-hmm. you know, doing bar shifts. I did some nannying. I did some, um, I trained as a personal trainer, but didn't really have any clients. I, I, you know, I was just doing so much to try and pay the, you know, my way towards the rent on a house, a flat in London with no other person there yeah. trying to, you know, pay for food, pay for cars and, you know, all the things that I had to kind of you know, life things as an 18 year old. Yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. And at, at this point then you had gone to compete at, you had competed at the yeah. um, Commonwealth, Commonwealth Games, Games mm. in New Zealand. Yeah. So you, although you didn't make it to the Olympics, you had really achieved a, a major goal yeah. there. Mm. So, I mean, what was it then that, I mean, then we're talking about doing kind of menial jobs. So is it, was it just the nature of um, the sport, the, the yeah, sport yeah. that it, it then wound down? Yeah. And the, uh, it's very different now, the sporting landscape for Olympic sports because of um, lottery grants. Um, then there was no such thing as a professional gymnast, you know, so you're reliant on the bank of mum and dad grants, things like that, national lottery, um, national sports foundation, sorry, grants. I got one for about 300 quid, you know, so it paid for a little bit of equipment and some yeah. travel, but, um, it was never going to be a job. And I never thought it was going to be a job. I always knew it was an exalted hobby that was going to give me great experiences. And going to Auckland was one of those incredible, you know, I could easily have chosen Auckland over London, but Auckland was a three week period. And it's suffice to say, I, I didn't really learn very much there. I just had a great time and loved the place. Mm-hmm. But um, but I I didn't um, ever see it as a profession because it wasn't, you know. So I knew it was going to come to an end. And in those days, because of the lack of funding and all of that, very few of us got beyond the age of 18, 19, because then education had to take over. And so I knew I wanted to go to university. And I was doing my A-levels. I got a back injury. It was quite bad. And I had to take some time off. And as soon as I took some time off, I, real life just kind of filled the vacuum mm-hmm. and um, a boyfriend and just being with my mates and doing my A-levels and all of that. And it was just so hard to get back into it. I had, I had dreams for a long time. I'd have gymnastics anxiety dreams for ages where I'd really? in my, yeah, I was back in the gym and I had to kind of suddenly be in a competition and, and I'd wake up thinking, oh, should that, should I, should I go back, you know? But, um, but I didn't. And, um, and it, yeah, for also for a while, I was very much in the mindset that I'd done my best thing. How will I ever do anything in life that's going to give me as much joy? And, you know, it was like I was grieving for something that mm. had given me this purpose. So, um, so that was, um, hard thing to, to say goodbye to. I can imagine. And so you mentioned there that 
you were doing these night shifts and stuff at the radio in Newcastle. And that was, I, I imagine, the very first steps into getting into broadcasting. Um, I mean, and then years later, of course, you kind of enter into this male-dominated world of sports and sports broadcasting, I should say. And, you know, how 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 was that? Like, how, how challenging was that at the time? Um, well, I- I think the naivety of youth helps. You know, I'd been on, so Metro Radio in Newcastle was where I cut my teeth. And the whole time I was at Durham University reading law, I had this separate little life in Newcastle, a city I absolutely adore and do to this day. And I was learning to be a broadcaster and I was doing weekend shifts on the news desk, eventually presenting shows. Then I worked for a full year hosting the breakfast show. And then Sky Sports because of a kind of quirk of uh, you know situation where I was clearly a sports fan, the head of the station, the radio station said, you should do interviews at St. James's Park on Saturdays and interview the footballers. And I just had no idea that this was even a thing, you know, that I could kind of go and earn money doing sports broadcasting. Then Sky saw me and they um, decided that they wanted to, um, you know, offer me a screen test. They saw me pitch side. And next thing I'm being offered a contract to go and work for Sky Sports. So I was kind of a bit naive, really. I still didn't know that this was going to be my career. I thought perhaps it was a step towards a career. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I kind of walked in there without any expectations. And um, and of course, it was very male dominated. I think the, my background helped because I don't like this word, but growing up with a footballer as a father, I was used to the kind of banter, if you like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was used to a certain amount of robust conversation and, you know, um, and language. And while I didn't necessarily partake in that myself, it didn't grossly offend me enough that I didn't want to be there. Um, If that is, you know, I mean, of course, there are things that were said and done in those environments that just wouldn't happen now. But then that was the same in probably a lot of other male dominated areas, such as the city of London, the trading floors or the, um, you know, the, um, the, the big law firms or the big accountancy firms. So all those places were like that. Um, So yeah, I just kind of got on with it, I think. And then there was a point where when I went to ITV, it was different. You know, I had there were a few more women around. You could feel a sea of change coming. There were women directors and producers. I had a boss who was incredibly supportive, a male boss, but who was very, very supportive and really wanted to push me as much as I could. And and actually it was a much more um I don't know whether it was because ITV obviously had uh, a different, you know, history to to Sky. Sky was primarily started as this kind of football channel, you know, and ITV had other concerns. It had other programming. So I I did feel then that things were starting. I saw female bosses in the bigger, wider company. So, um, yeah, I I think I was lucky to answer your question that I didn't have social media to deal with, that it wasn't invented. And Mm. I think that probably helped me. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, I mean, it's changed considerably in recent years. But one thing that really fascinated me was... The idea, given that your dad was a footballer and obviously watching your coverage of the women's Euros this summer, which I mean, will go down as one of the most exciting sporting events that so many of us have witnessed. And I imagine, was it the same for you? I mean, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely brilliant. And I, obviously it was delayed because of COVID. So it has supposed to have been the previous year. And, um, Sometimes you think things happen actually for the right reasons. It had the floor to itself, no other big male football tournaments to kind of clash into it yeah. or, you know, and it had the floor to itself. And it was, um, as women's football, I think, has really done well and has always had the opportunity, it created its own narrative. You know, there was, I, I think the best, the best part about that Euros was it 
did it the way that kind of it should have done rather than trying to copy and ape the way a man's tournament was, you know? And I don't, there was something, a spirit about it. And that even the grounds that people complained at the beginning that certain grounds should have been chosen above others. And actually the cities that it was in lent their own personalities. You know, the games in Brighton were just incredible. Um, even like Sheffield had a few games and were, were, were fantastic. And so it, it was really the, the atmosphere, the spirit all the way through. You just felt this is really special. This has got a uniqueness. This is this is building to something. And of course, every tournament I've ever worked in, in any part of the world, you want the home nation to do well because it does help the, the, the tournament stay alive. And we just were kind of going, let's just get England to the semis. As long as we get England to the semis, the tournament, you know. So to get England in a final and then England win that final, it really was, you know, the cherry on the top of a cherry on the top of a, you know, a very iced cake. It was yeah. just amazing. And the the games were brilliant. The personalities involved. The the weather was, yeah, was just even off that, the charts. Like perfect, like, oh, it was a perfect storm. And, it you know, I've always said the London Olympics was the best thing I've worked on. And now it's got a rival, I think, because the Euros has definitely given that a real run for its money. And so had women not been banned from professional football by the FA until 1971, it just seems astonishing. Would you have considered following in your father's footsteps, you think? I wonder now if I've been, you know, if I was an eight-year-old girl now in this country and my dad is a professional footballer, I am 99% certain that I would have tried to play football. Mm. Yeah. 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 There's because, been such a shift in. Oh, the, I, I just get little moments where I was in, I was in the super, my local supermarket um, the other week. It must've been a Saturday morning and um, there was a mum and daughter just rushing in with a basket to grab a few bits. And the little girl was in her football kit, this blonde swingy ponytail, you know, kind of like look five years ago, she might've been in a ballet dress, you know, coming on a Saturday morning, but she was in a football kit with yeah. her shin pads in. And she was, I was just, Oh, I was kind of looking, I go, Oh, wow, this is amazing. You know? <laughs> and, um, and that is going on all over the country and that is just phenomenal yeah. and brilliant. And that is exactly the change that we wanted to see. Yeah. I'm, I'm about to have a little girl, uh, my first. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. And my husband is really, really into football and, um, and we were watching it and he was so emotional watching that that final and and the the effects of it and your your kind of speech that you gave at the end uh, your, your commentary because it and he had tears in his eyes he never ever ever cries but he was imagining that this will open up football yeah. for, for our daughter in the future in a way that it wasn't before and you can feel this season the WSL it really has already you know created um, more noise we're getting more coverage. The, the personalities on, you know, um, I, I host the London Marathon. Three lionesses will open the London Marathon. And, you know, that is incredible. It really is, I think, uh, already delivering in terms of a legacy piece. Definitely. And what kind of further progress are you hoping to see in women's sports? Because I thought it was really interesting during the athletics that they were talking, was it Dean Asher-Smith was talking about not competing that well because of her period that day? Mm. Or that, you know, mm. there are various different people are being Conversations. Open, people yeah, are there's... being open about things in a different way, more outspoken. Yeah. And I think, the, you know, that we can't uh, kind of turn around now on that. You know, this is this is a space where women are competing at a very high level. They're putting their bodies, you know, pushing their bodies, and they're going to talk about things that affect them. And and then we see it with men and women in in sport now talking about the the mental health side of what they do yeah. and the pressures that they feel. And um and there's you know there is 
I think a really important distinction between pressure in sport and mental health. There are two different things and we don't want to kind of cloud the situation Mm -hmm. because sport is pressure filled and it's how you deal with that. And then there are those people that actually it becomes crippling and it's something that causes them to take time out of the sport. But what Dina has done, I think with women's issues is made people mindful of that. I mean, I genuinely think a lot of my male colleagues really didn't understand that, you know, and there are studies obviously being done about, um, there is a link between, um, injuries that like ACL knee knee type injuries cartilage injuries that happen kind of at a certain time of a woman's cycle to do with the you know really? yeah and the women the female footballs but if you know that and you can track your period right I shouldn't be doing a session today that involves contact because you know it's, it's day five risk. of my period yeah. yeah so just understanding what kind of training you should be doing at certain times of the month Jessica Ennis Hill actually has got a brilliant app which is about that um it's um it's all about kind of mapping your your cycle to to your training and because um, you should be doing kind of like i think from memory it's more in uh, leading up to your period you can do kind of heavier weights and your your strength is kind oh, of you know at its peak and then once you're on your period it starts to kind of drop off for a bit so yeah wow. it's very interesting yeah that i mean that's a really important shift that needs to be happening Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host thank you to airbnb for supporting the travel diaries Hmm. so let's pause there then and move on to chapter four which is your all-time favorite destination this is impossible um it really is because it implies that you'll never go you know you'll never go back and, and you know you'll just go back the rest of your life and i always feel like 
there's somewhere else, you know, that um, that I want to find, and there's somewhere else that I want to go to, and and I, I, I honestly. I, I find it really hard. I don't know how people answer this question. I because- often say when it, people are struggling with it so much, it's like how you feel today. What would be your all-time favorite okay. destination today in a way? Because it is something that is, you know, transient. Yeah, totally. I mean, we took the kids to Japan a few years ago and we absolutely loved it. You know, everybody had an amazing trip and we went to few different places and it was an assault on the the senses it was an assault on the the brain it was an overload of kind of cultural information and we we loved it and i think back to that holiday and think how um how brilliant it was and how nourishing it was but the that wouldn't be my all time even though it ticks a lot of boxes and my my kids and my husband would laugh if they heard what i'm about to say is my all time (laughs) but you know i where i feel kind of like happiest and it can be winter summer or spring is in the mountains where there are lakes. And so I love, um, even this is the, this is the sentence they're going to laugh at. I love ski holidays because they think I'm a rubbish skier. That's why they're going to laugh because <laughs> I actually kind of did my knee in on a ski holiday. Right. I'm not a very quick skier. I'm, I, I found skiing late in life, but I love being in the Alps. I love that feeling of the, the crisp air, you know, the, the snow, the, the, the nature, the, um, that when you see a lake high up in a mountain, the kind of, you know, that just an active holiday with also that kind of brilliant restorative feeling that you get from the air and, you know, the cold. Um, and then in summertime, those places yeah. are equally as beautiful. So, um, yeah, and I think it maybe goes back a bit to my childhood, Vancouver in the mountains and Canada and, you know, going, we'd go up to Whistler on a Sunday for lunch and, you know, drive up to kind of, you know, some beautiful old village in the middle of, um, of the Rockies. And so I think it would be, yeah, the Alps. Mm. Is there, are there particular resorts that you really love? No, we've kind of moved around a bit and uh, we were in the Oster Valley last time we skied and we moved between kind of France and Switzerland and Italy, which That's was amazing. So nice. You know, you could ski, ski through three countries pretty much in a day. Um, we've we've enjoyed Switzerland the most, though, I would say. That's probably our mm. um, go-to country for skiing and different places in Switzerland. Um, but never had kind of I've never felt like any I've wanted to buy anything anywhere in the world to be honest you like I've never my mum was always when I was young going why don't you get yourself a place in Spain mm-hmm. you love Spain why don't you Spain um <laughs> but I've always wanted to move around I want to see other places you know and I want to go to a, I've skied in Vermont and um oh, wow uh, yeah was that, that was what, amazing American skiing is is kind of different though it's, isn't it it's very different yeah um it's much the the slopes are really wide and it didn't feel it felt like a dry ski slope in many ways because it was quite perfect and and really wide and um and I like the the difference you get in Europe you know you get some really interesting I mean I, honestly I am not a good skier so I'm talking like I'm some kind of like you know downhill expert I'd I'd, I'd happily just go on green slopes all day just admiring the trees well, I you think know? that's not, nice because most people aren't like professional level skiers no, but I've got know, a family that think they're all like you know just on the edge of the British team you know so um <laughs> and they don't believe me when I say I'm happy going that slow like, oh, my, my son's the worst he just stands at the bottom of the mountain going oh for god's sake and that was when he was 12 you know um I'm like I'm happy go ahead without me I don't need you it's fine they just want to go down black runs You're all the time. 
going along in the lovely environment. Yeah. yeah. I, I, the, the sad thing is, though, I thought I was going quite quickly once and they videoed me and I look like Mary Poppins. I'm so upright. You know, when Mary <laughs> Poppins flies off with her umbrella, I'm, I thought I was down like with my head on my knees and I'm practically standing and going, oh, that's not the pose I thought I was actually <laughs> committed to. <laughs> that's funny. Um, I, I imagine also you've been to so many um, amazing sporting venues and mm. for you know somebody who hasn't had the chance to experience much live sport where mm. would you say would be an amazing venue mm. for them to kind of get that amazing mm. sporting atmosphere that makes a hair stand up on the back of your neck well it's it's about it's about the the occasion for me um that always delivers like I've, I've hosted a rugby well been involved in a rugby world cup final that england won in sydney right you don't get much better than that yeah. that was you know insanely brilliant to be there I've been at, you know, World Cup finals. I've been at European finals. I've done Olympic games, you know. So I would say there's two things that if you were on a bucket list of things that you should do and to be at the 100 meter final at an Olympic games, you know, that's, that's pretty, that day of sport, if you like, is Mm. pretty amazing. Um, And I love the Six Nations. I think the Six Nations always delivers. The cities are great cities, you know. So a Calcutta Cup match at Murrayfield, you get, you know, Edinburgh is a stunning place. You go to these amazing cities, you see this intense, brilliant sport that really matters. And then you can have this fantastic weekend of, you know, it's like a festival almost. Yeah. And the Six Nations is a bit like a festival. And the thing that I've worked on it since 2007, so I've worked on it for 15 years and it never, ever fails to deliver. Like, you know, it starts in the depths of winter at the end of January, early February, and it finishes as the blossoms coming out and the sun's starting to kind of like uh, get some yeah, heat that's and, a nice way you know, and it's end, just a yeah. beautiful way. And quite often in the early part of me doing it, I would finish in Rome. We were still doing the games in Italy on the BBC. So my final weekend was often in Rome and Rome in the middle of March is possibly the best place you could ever want to because you know Rome gets a little bit sticky in the middle of summer mm. but Rome in March with the sun shining the big blue sky you know the, the the light on all those incredible buildings and the atmosphere they used to stay at the, and play at this place called the Stadio Flaminio and it was a, a nice small compact ground and it was just occasionally Italy would pull off a you know a massive scalp and it was just the best so um yeah go take in a Six Nations game mm. go any to any of them the Stade de France in Paris is not my favorite stadium but if the French team are playing well, you will not hear an atmosphere really? like it. That's yeah, a really memorable one. Yeah, yeah. And of all the incredible sporting achievements that you've witnessed in your career, if you had to pick an all-time favourite one that you witnessed, mm. is there one that you just think, I can't believe that I was there for that? Maybe this summer. You know, maybe being at Wembley. Wembley, the home of football. Wembley, the place that I've been working at for 25 years, you know, in its different guises, the old Wembley, the new Wembley, seen so many amazing things happen at Wembley. And to be there on that day when women's football really did come home and we had that feeling that, you know, that these women had generations of women who'd built up that moment. And it was a, it was a, a, just a beautiful thing. I think it was, um, yeah, the, probably the most important of all the things that I've seen, you yeah. know, and all the things that I've, I've been to, um, and I have, you know, as I say, I've been lucky enough to see world records I, in Rio at the Olympics. I've seen, so that, you know, that that blows my mind. Like well, that was Wade van Niekerk in the 400 meters. And to sit in a stadium next to the man who held the record, Michael Johnson yeah. in Rio, and watch another man run quicker than he'd run 
and think that person is the fastest person in the world running around that track. And that is, you know, that is quite a remarkable thing. And I was also in Vienna. I hosted the coverage of Eliud Kipchoge when he ran a sub two hour marathon in Vienna. Yeah. That was another day that I just, you know, that was a bit like first man on the moon type thing in terms of, you know, people listening Wonder. going, not not quite, but it is yeah. to think of a human being running under two hours, as he so nearly did in Berlin last week. And that was because the record doesn't stand as a world record because it was tailored to create the run. You know, it was because um, he had this kind of um, these these guys who were like his peloton almost. Right. So um, and the surface, obviously, and, the you know, the, they deliberately chose Vienna because it was flat in, you know, the park he was running in and it was tree lined. And so they created the, the but he still ran under two hours. Right. Yeah. So it was like he wasn't. Um, but but it wasn't an official IAAF uh, race. And that moment was, wow, that, I, you know is for not I me mean, that is like most of us what we could probably sprint 100 meters at the pace that he's running for two hours it's just hard to wrap your head around it isn't it the, yeah, the fit yeah. the level of fitness un- yeah. unbelievable yeah he's and, and i think the power that you know that i'm never going to run that quickly and i'm not particularly you know wanting to run that quickly but what he shows people is the possibility of pushing yourself into situations and that that is always for me what sport has attracted why I've been attracted to sport you know it's not it's not because I'm kind of like wanting to kind of you know be the person that comes up with the magic formation for England to win a football world cup or anything like that it's it's about people and it's about inspiration and it's about possibility Mm, yeah that's really nice so moving on to chapter five that is your hidden gem a place Mm -hmm. you love that maybe Mm -hmm. my listeners don't know so much about okay I've got it for you um so we we divided our honeymoon into two and the first week I said to Kenny trust me you're going to love what we're going to do for two weeks but there will be a day in the middle where we have a bit of complicated travel so the first week we went to a hotel called Eden Rock in St Bart's and Ah. it was amazing and that's not the hidden gem by the way don't worry that's that's because that is I mean it's like as they they call it the playground for the kind of rich and famous Spencer Matthews is the guest the week after you so he and his family hotel yeah and and I we had the best week there we loved it it was great and Kenny was thinking like where could we be going next week you know she's 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 pulled it (laughs) out here yeah 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 and we had a really fantastic we I remember we were sat one day with our kind of feet in the sand having lunch at their fantastic beach restaurant and we discovered Mahi and uh four mojitos later I was like, these are nice and then we <laughs> literally kind of spent the rest of the afternoon sleeping them off and we had a really lovely week and then we got on a small plane and went to the island of saint martin and kenny's like going and now what and then we got in another plane and went to um philadelphia and then we got in another plane and we went to lebanon new hampshire and kenny by this point i said look i told you this day was going to be a little bit complicated when we got to lebanon new hampshire a car picked us up and took us to a place called Twin Farms in Vermont. And, um, and it was everything I was hoping it was going to be and more. And we just had the most, and I suppose going back to my kind of destiny, you know, I could easily have chosen that place because it's like the Alpine type scenario. You know, you've got your trees, your forests, your lakes, and the hotel itself, it's not a hotel. It's, it's, a, it's so hard to describe Twin Farms. It's a collection of little buildings around an estate that, and then there's a big lake and there's woods and there's a main kind of house. But you're in these amazing 
rooms. They're not more than rooms. They're, you've got to go on their website and have a look. And they're themed. And so we were in the art house, which was filled with, I think it had a, um, a wall hole and a hockney and, you know, and and then they have these little um, vehicles that travel around and kind of, without you noticing somehow, when you've gone for a walk, you come back and your room's been done and there's, they've left something incredible in there. And then you go, you have to go to dinner at similar times because the food kind of is all local and it's a chef's Farm menu to basically. Table. Yeah. So you don't, and this was back 20 odd years ago, right? 21 years ago. So they were kind of ahead of the, the game in that kind of thing. And the food was insane and just so fresh and brilliant. And it just is like going into hospitality utopia, you know, in terms of how, but without it being like a big posh hotel, you know, which feels too, too much, you know, mm-hmm. and there's no cloches or anything like that. It's not kind of silver service. It's just, beautiful and so much to do which I we love you know I'm not Kenny will quite happily lie down listen to something on a sun lounger for seven hours but I I prefer getting up right we go for a run or we go for a walk or we go for a bike ride or we go for you know a hike and go on a boat do something or just sit by a lake and read a book mm. you know the options are all there so that place is definitely and we went back about 10 years later after we'd had kids, we didn't take the kids, but we went in the winter time. The first time we went July and we went in the middle of winter and it was snowing. And I think I fell in love with it all over again because oh. it was just so, so different in the snow. Yeah. So we need to go in the fall. Yeah, see the fall foliage. Yeah, yeah, next year I think I might surprise him and take him in the autumn because it's our first year next year where we don't have children going back to school. Right. So I said we need to mark that by doing something we would never do in September. Make the most you know. of that. Yeah. 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 Oh, that sounds like it would be an amazing trip. That part of the year in Vermont with all the like yeah. maple syrup and the pumpkins. Yeah. And yeah. Can you imagine? Oh, cider just... by the side of the road. Oh, yeah. yeah. It'd be incredible. So exciting. Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful hidden gem. What an amazing, and also what an amazing jewel center to trip I'm very impressed with that honeymoon <laughs> I'd like to go on that honeymoon because <laughs> we'd, we'd had some fantastic holidays we'd only been going out a year and a half before we got engaged but our first um, ever holiday together I'd only known Kenny about two months and he said I've got these two business class flights I've got to use up because I did a thing for Singapore Airlines he said and I've got to go somewhere that they fly to but they've got to be used by the summer he said do you want to come with me somewhere and I was like yeah. He said, do you want to find the hotel? So I was like, yeah, okay. And we went to two Amman hotels in Bali and that was our first holiday. I mean, that's, that's setting the bar. Yeah, I know. So he then thinks that I'm this amazing holiday kind of finder. And so he just then after that always said, you sort it out, you sort it out, nice. which I really enjoyed yeah. doing. So yeah. Perfect. Well, very much a contrast to that. Our penultimate chapter, chapter six is your worst travel experience. Uh, yeah, there's there's been a few actually. Um, I'll give you a runner up. Um, I had an amazing trip to Peru when I was in between going to ITV and I'd leaving Sky going to ITV. I had a few weeks off and I went with a guy I was a friend with from university, not a boyfriend, just a mate. And we had a brilliant time, did Machu Picchu and all of that. It was fantastic. Went to Cusco and kind of, you know, we were supposed to travel a bit more in Bolivia. But um, the day we were getting the train, uh, the famous 11-hour train journey from Machu Picchu to Cusco, I woke up with what I genuinely thought was um, the end. I thought I, I had such bad dysentery. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was just, I was basically, it was, as they say, coming out of both ends. And I thought, I'm dying. Like You know, when you're looking around, waiting for the angel of death to just kind of grab your hand, I thought, <laughs> this is the end. I couldn't get up. I was cramped. I was throwing up all the time. And we had to get on this train. Well, we had to get on this train. And we were in what they called Inca class. I'd paid about one pound more for Inca class tickets. And the toilet, even in Inca class, was just a hole 
on in the ground that you had to try and, and a moving train. Oh so uh, when's this gonna, nightmare going to end? I never, I couldn't lie up. I couldn't sit up. I was lying down the whole time. We get to Bolivia. It was dark in the um, train station and I fell down a manhole um, into sewerage. I mean, you just couldn't, this day was, yeah, into sewerage. And um, we get to our hotel and I just went to the toilet and the plumbing broke and everything I just put down the toilet came back up around the floor of the bathroom and so I was basically standing in my own stuff going um I was sharing a room with this guy and I was saying he was behind the door and I said I want to go home I'm not surprised (laughs) and so he I can't believe this is a runner-up actually this probably should be top dog um but I just can't give Peru that honor because it was such a lovely trip besides that and bizarrely the next we looked this was internet wasn't working as well it's when you had to plug it into the wall and we were in the middle of Bolivia and he said right there are two flights out tomorrow from Lima so we can get to Lima in the morning he said there are two places we can go in the states Las Vegas or New Orleans and I'd never been to New Orleans but my sister lived in Las Vegas so I said let's go to Vegas so we arrived in Vegas with our ponchos and our rucksacks looking like <laughs> some kind of bad you know 80s movie had no clothes to wear to go to casinos or dinner or anything like that I had to go out and buy some clothes and ended up having this surreal final three or four days of our of our trip but um yeah that was that was definitely in the running but number one um and it's not this place per se it was just the circumstances so early on, when I was just talking about Kenny telling me that I was the holiday finder and all that, he um, he said, right, this summer, he said, I need to go somewhere that's in Europe because I've got the World Cup coming up. I can't go too far. I don't want to go to Bali. Da, da, da. Has to have a gym, has to be this, has to be that. And I got persuaded by somebody to go to San Moritz out of season. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I think with hindsight, there are other ski resorts out of season that would have been better. And we went to the Badrutz Palace, which is the hotel in the San Moritz. Hotel. Yeah. And first of all, they hadn't renovated their gym, right? It was really terrible. But secondly, the thing that really clinched it for us being a bad place for us to stay was all the restaurants were shut, bar one, that you had to wear a jacket and tie for every night. Kenny didn't have a jacket and tie and it was cloche meals and all that. So he said to me, right, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here now, cut our losses. Let's go somewhere else. We went down to Nice and the only hotel available was in Monaco and we had no kids and it was July. And basically the whole hotel was full of families, mainly Russian families actually, with tons of kids running around. It was the noisiest hotel you've ever been. And when you haven't got kids yourself and you're lying reading your book and kind of you've got kids jumping over your head, you just, that's why there are adult only hotels, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, we, in the end, we just had to laugh because it was kind of so farcical, this trip. (laughs) And then on the final night, there was the famous Red Cross ball happening in this place called Jimmy's, which is right next to the hotel we were staying in. And we'd sit on our balcony at night and we'd watched various fireworks. And he said, (laughs) he said, should we try and gate crash the Red Cross, Cross ball? And so they had these friends who were staying in Nice and we all got dressed up and we gate crashed the Red Cross ball. (laughs) We basically blagged our way in somehow and kind of found ourselves like in this very famous glamorous event that we had no right to be at. So it ended with a bit of a twist, but it was a... It was a disaster of a trip. It was a very expensive mistake because we had yeah. to keep cancelling oh, flights. Yeah, and, I can yeah, imagine it's yeah. Hammeritz in itself. I mean, that's oh, a very pr- yeah. the priciest. I'm sure that hotel is amazing in the middle of winter, the Cresta Run, all of that. Yeah. But at that point, it just, yeah, it wasn't ready for summer. But everybody there being polite was over the age of 80 apart from us so we were not mixing with our people um <laughs> i mean i'm still picturing you in that in this hotel room in peru to be honest in, was it peru or bolivia <laughs> yeah no that was back in bolivia that was at that point yeah i think you didn't have a crush on that guy I know we, we were at university. We'd been president and deputy president of our college at Durham and we were very good mates. And his brother, his, his best mate was my then boyfriend and we'd split up. So, 
Stan, his name was. Stan and I were truly like brother sister relationship. Thank God, because I don't think anybody that you had a remote crush on, if you'd done that in a toilet, and I don't think there'll be any chance with it. <laughs> no, it would be mortifying, absolutely mortifying. <laughs> so, oh, Gabby, it's been so great chatting to you. Uh, we are now on to the final chapter of your travel diaries, chapter seven, and that is the destination that's at the top of your travel bucket list. So I, I, you've mentioned some of the places I've been to in the world for work. I've worked in China, in Australia, in New Zealand. I did, um, and that wasn't the Commonwealth Games. I actually went and filmed a commercial in New Zealand. You know, I've been lucky enough to work in, in America and South America. I've never been to India. I've never worked in India. I've never been to the continent. I've never been to the subcontinent. I, I, I just want to, I want to do it properly. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to just nip there for a kind of week. I want to go to the cities. I want to go to the coastal areas. And so that is somewhere that I've definitely in the next few years, especially when my kids have left home and kind of, we can do something at a time of year that you wouldn't always be able to travel. Yeah. Um, that is somewhere I'm, I'm definitely going to try and oh, get to. How exciting. What a wonderful place left to discover. Yeah. Yeah. I think so because I, I you know, everything about it, it is really exciting to me you know the 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 religious elements the the politics the food the landscape the you know the animals the wildlife it just it has so much that i i think i i'll do lots of reading before i go and make sure that you know we get it right and it won't all be our luxurious hotels <laughs> <laughs> sounds amazing well i really hope that you make it there soon thank you so much gabby logan those were your travel diaries it's been great fun chatting to you thanks so much thank you so much thanks for having me Oh, a huge thank you to broadcasting legend Gabby Logan. Her new book, The First Half, is available from October 13th in hardback, ebook, and audio. And you can purchase it now from bookstores and online retailers. Thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like to hear more from the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to hit follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. And if you're really enjoying it, I'd be so grateful if you fancy leaving a quick rating or review. If you want to be the first to find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I'd love to hear from you. And if you can't wait till then, remember there's the first seven seasons to catch up on. That's over 85 episodes to keep you busy there. Don't forget that all the destinations mentioned by my guests are always included in the episode show notes here on your podcast app. And they're also always on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll be back next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers 
just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 